This is Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to this week's episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. This week my guest is Professor Mordecai Gordon of Quinnipiac University in Connecticut, USA. He's a writer and lecturer in education and we discuss the importance of uncertainty and doubt. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in at ttradio.org. Download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back with my guest, Professor Mordecai Gordon of Quinnipiac University in the beautiful state of Connecticut. And as we're recording this, there's a most tremendous heat wave going on in the United States. And uh, Professor, are you experiencing this? No, not as intense as the South, but a lot of uh, we're experiencing high humidity. So it's very humid and kind of air is heavy. I, I, I have experienced a Chicago summer, so I know something of what they used to call hum- 100% humidity, which I wouldn't have thought was even possible. <laughs> that's right. That's it. <laughs> Surely that's underwater. Right. That's it. 100%. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining me on this show. And um, my listeners will know that what I'm doing is exploring after 38 years or so of teaching. What exactly I was up to, and I don't mean, and I mean that in a sense, it's, I think, I'm not entirely clear that was I doing good or ill? <laughs> and I don't mean that in, in a terribly depressive sense, but I think teaching is problematic. And I think for me, I'm reflecting on what we do in teaching and, I'm, and, I, and, I, and the uncertainty I feel about that. And one of the things that struck me initially was when I saw from the things you've written, one of the things you wrote a few years ago now, I think 2005, was on myths in American education. And it struck me that's, a, that's such a good place to start because – over my career, I've seen a number of fads and myths and ideas about education sort of come and go. And I'm wondering if teaching is just a place that's rather um, easily beset with beliefs that seem so fixed and, and then pass. So what led you to myths in American education? Great place to start. I had been a professor of ed- teacher education for a number of years. I started at Brooklyn College and then uh, before transferring to Quinnipiac University for a tenure-track job. But I was working with in-service and uh, pre-service teacher candidates, teaching the Foundations of Education course each year and sometimes each semester. And I noticed over the years that they had these kinds of misconceptions and myths about teaching. At the time, I was living in in White Plains, New York, and taking the train and the subway to the the Brooklyn College, and I was so I had time, uh, and I, I so I sat there in the subway, I think, and started jot, taking notes, jotting down uh, some of the more common misconceptions that my teacher candidates had. Uh, eventually uh, came up with 10. As you mentioned a minute ago, the fads that people, because education is a field that goes through kind of like a pendulum and fads. And so, for example, um, that theory and practice have no relationship, uh, or that, that they're like these two very different things. That's one, that a good classroom is a quiet classroom is another that multiculturalism that you you meant is only about teaching uh, heroes and holidays. Uh, that testing more testing means better education. Did you did you have to bring yourself to stop at ten, or did you say I could keep on going here? This uh, this this is there are so many things we believe that. I've just been embedded. And- to be perfectly honest, 10 sounds uh, good. Uh, 10 common myths. It's a, it's a, and, and I even had a colleague of mine he made a joke about it. He asked, he would come to my office and ask, why 10? And, 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 I, and he accused me of plagiarizing from Moses. 
from the Ten Commandments. <laughs> so uh, in a kind of uh, jovial kind of, obviously. But uh, yeah, I th- it just, I stopped at some point. Right, you're absolutely right. I could have gone on and found more, but it, it made sense to stop. Uh, these were the common ones that I could think about that I was kind of encountering in my teaching. What about, what about I'd say one of the themes that seems to come through some of the things you've written about, um, uh, for instance, uh, existential philosophy and so on. I mean, you take a very philo- philosophical approach to to thinking about teaching, which which, which is I think fundamental to, to to thoughts about what it, what it is we do, but that doubt and uncertainty. Are actually not you know you can embrace those things, and if a student is says well I'm not really certain where this is going or I I feel at a loss there seems to be a different I can't reconcile different views in this lesson or something of that kind that actually is not that that can be creative and positive it doesn't have to be a bad thing at all yeah yeah I've always felt that's a great point John I've always felt uh, that way to your point that there's a value in having students kind of struggle with something uh, initially uh, and, and kind of uh, not understand it immediately and then come after uh, some kind of uh, struggles or uh, work through those struggles and reach the insights that you want them to reach uh, not not necessarily immediately, uh, and, and but going through a journey, and we can trace that back to to Socrates and and Plato uh, with the dialogues of of uh, when we see um, how Socrates's um, interlocutors, the people that he uh, dialogued with, debated with would often kind of become confused and he would um, come sometimes even discouraged and, and uh, Socrates would have to kind of um, kind of uh, take them on a journey of uh, working through those confusions till eventually become getting a little bit more clarity and understanding. So I'm the kind of educator that... Um, and even in the way that I create my syllabus, or I don't give students some, I know colleagues that have 15, 20 page syllabi because they want to, the students to know everything in advance and everything. I'm not that kind of uh, educator. I, I want things to kind of, in the course of the semester, to kind of unfold and become clear and not necessarily give everything away at, at the outset. Do you, do you ever say to students that it it may be possible that I'll also learn something here? <laughs> that sometimes uh, in during a lesson, I know I've experienced that where you think a student, not just a student, but a rather clever student, because they often are very clever, will say things that uh, you yourself go, "Well, I've never thought of it that way. I'll have to I'll have to think about that." Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I I I, I mean I value that I. I want that. I want them to to kind of challenge me with uh, questions that, and not questions and uh, about how long does the uh, midterm paper need to be, or or how, what font, or not not those kinds of questions, but questions about content, questions about uh, you know, ch- questions where they challenge ideas uh that my in my own perspective uh yes so absolutely that's that's the real fun of teaching uh and the real kind of challenge of teaching i was thinking as you mentioned um kind of socratic dialogues and the idea that one one question that i doubt socrates ever faced from his students was is this in the test and (laughs) and that that kind of idea that that i hope it isn't true but i I feel it, it might be that during my teaching career, there was an increasing um, data-driven kind of instrumentalism. The, the things we teach must be measurable. Not, it came yeah. from two directions. It came from the students themselves. They wanted, the out, they wanted to know the outcomes. Yeah. Is it? Am I going to pass the test? But also it came from the school, which they, well, we, we have to measure what schools are. We have to measure what lessons successful are. So there has to be something we can pin down 
that's measurable on a spreadsheet and so on. Well, that, that, that doesn't leave a lot of room for uncertainty. Right. And, and not only that, uh, and I agree with you that the pressure comes from different uh, sources from the uh, here in the United States, also from the students, but uh, from the district, from the st- uh, from the states, uh, and from even federal legislation that we had in the United States, like No Child Left Behind in the early two thousands, and thing. Uh, but uh, it's not only that doesn't leave room for uncertainty, but one could make a very good case that some of the most important things that we want students to learn and, and develop cannot be measured uh, numerically uh, easily, uh, like developing good character, like uh, becoming more critical thinkers, like um, empathy, um, crea- you mentioned creativity before, uh, all those things that we really uh, thinking outside of the box those are things that are much more difficult to, to measure. Uh, so uh, in, a, in a kind of uh, numerical, um, you know, accurate kind of way. So, so when we, uh, ultimately, I'll say it this way, because I say this to my students, it's a very important, education is uh, really about hinges on very few questions. Uh, one of them is what do we emphasize what what are we gonna choose to emphasize, and what are we gonna de-emphasize? And so that that and and so the, your point about testing and and measurement uh, kind of goes to that question. When we put so much emphasis on testing and measurement, we uh, uh, the byproduct of that the sad is that we de-emphasize really the things that are much more important that I just mentioned like creativity, critical thinking, uh, good character, um, kind of becoming informed and critical citizens in a democratic society. So, yeah, so that's the the point that, that we need to keep in mind. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check, or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Mordecai Gordon, author, lecturer, and teacher of education at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut, USA. We're discussing why teachers should not be afraid of uncertainty. Before the break, Professor Gordon, you said something which struck me as as a concern in teaching, that we are trying to create creative, um, we're trying to develop creative, thoughtful, critically thinking students. At the same time, much of our education is dominated by systems of testing and examining in which we have to find ways of defining knowledge with very clear boundaries. This is the thing you should know and so on. And... If any system of testing, and Britain is a very examined, examined, I know we're not the worst in the world, but we have a lot of exams, students sit exams in their early years in school, their SATs tests, they'll also sit GCSEs or general certificates, they'll sit A-levels and so on, so we, we, do, we do an awful lot of testing, and that tends to wag the dog. I mean, 
if the, if you know there's a test at the end of anything, then the thing that you are going to teach is becomes prioritized. As right. it. If it's in the test, it's important. If it's not in the test, it's not important. Correct. So that, and, so that, that, so that gives a sort of hierarchy of knowledge. <laughs> and, and indeed, students will ask, is this, is this in the test? And sometimes right. you have to say, well, no, not really. <laughs> right, but it's still important. It's not on the – yeah, and, and, and teaching, it's not – obviously, it's not only in the UK. It's very uh, prominent here in the United States of, of teachers spending uh, weeks and months uh, teaching students uh, to preparing them for the test. Uh, and again, that has um, – uh, some negative consequences. So now, for example, narrowing down of the curriculum uh, because you only have so much time in the day and you have to, so if you're, uh, and the testing in the United States at least uh, at the beginning of the 20th century was uh, focused primarily on, on language arts reading, right, and math. And so, one of the byproducts of that heavy emphasis on, on that kind of testing in, a, in public schools is that s other subjects uh, like uh, social studies, history, uh, civics, uh, art, music uh, received very little attention. Mm. Yeah, it does. This, it sort of, again, establishes you know, those things we think are worth knowing. And, and also, I a tendency to try to break down those more open-ended things, those uh, creative arts, into things you can measure. I was talking to a teacher who's a lecturer in drama education, and I said, well, in this country, we, we have a GCSE in drama, and I can remember briefly being involved in assessing this. Now you'd walk around the room and you try to assess students in their ability to share ideas or communicate with others or cooperate in a group. And I think, well, I've invented a means of assessing students in being human. I've simply constructed a series of ways in which you can fail to communicate effectively or fail to share things effectively. So it's it's it maybe maybe you know maybe good a good drama student was something you say. Well, I know you're a good drama student, but I can't tell you why. It's a it's right. like mist. There's a slight mystery to it. Yeah, or um, I w what I would add to what you just said, in, in the case of drama or dance or the art, we, we can uh, view the, how they perform. Uh, we don't measure it, but we can uh, see how somebody uh, performs over time uh, and, and kind of like a portfolio, creating a portfolio of performance. So if it's a painter, uh, you, they're going to submit a portfolio of their work. Or if it's a musician, they're going to kind of uh, record or perform. Uh, so, so, yeah, and that's very different from the kind of uh, testing that you were talking about before, that really that kind of testing, the standardized testing, measures what a person knows in a specific moment in time or what, th what they can recall. And that's very different from the kind of performance of, of uh, theater uh, actors or musicians that, that have to kind of practice a long time and, and develop a craft that they can kind of hone uh, and share with others. So I don't know if I'm I'm answering your question, but I'm trying. We're having more of a conversation, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think it is it is difficult to know uh, the what well, that that is at the heart of what we do. You're uncertain as to whether you're the instructor or whether you're the facilitator, whether you are someone who is allowing people to develop their innate talents, or whether you're you know drawing them in a direct direction and thereby imposing on them what you think should be. You know, it's it's a bit like look, le leaning over the shoulder of the. Um, I remember when I, I when I did a, a sort of sketching class once, and uh, the teacher looked over my shoulder and said, "You know, that's that's, that's not too bad." And I thought, well, I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I want you to tell me, is it good or isn't it good? <laughs> I don't I don't care about whether whether what I, what I think it's what you think. You're the instructor, uh, and leaving space for people to to do. So I I don't, I don't think I I suspect I'm. There's an area of doubt and confusion in my own mind about what exactly I do as a teacher. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's a book um, that 
I use uh, by Parker Palmer and I draw in, in my research called The Courage, to, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, called The Courage to Teach. Uh, and he says there at the very beginning of the book, to your point, that good teachers are ones that have these kind of doubts and uncertainties and kind of uh, are their heart is kind of broken sometimes when things don't go the way that they uh you know expected it to go and they have quite they, they question uh themselves and they um kind of care about being good and and uh but not in the sense of um what we were talking earlier about uh producing uh, students who can ace standardized kind of uh, do well on standardized tests, but but um, helping students learn and develop things that they didn't know be- before and kind of become good human beings in that that sense of of good teaching. And that that sounds to me like again another one of the problems for for teach for all teachers is is that mis- the mysterious quality. That, that somehow you can affect teachers. I mean, students might say to you, I, I remember your classes. I absolutely and I remember this wonderful lesson you did, and it stays with me forever. And you find very flattered. Thank you very much. That's, that's delightful. And yet you can't really remember what it is you did that day. I mean, you know, it was only single, you know, standard sort of lesson, but I, must, I said something that impressed you or did something in a way. Or, you know, there was a mysterious performance quality, <laughs> which that's- you can't entirely pin down. Yeah, that's often the case. That I have, I have the same kind of reaction sometimes from students that, uh, but I can't remember uh, because uh, going back to the Palmer program that I just um, cited in his book, "The Courage to Teach," that it's uh, it's not so much what he says in that book. It's not so much of uh, having a certain technique because different. Good teachers have different techniques. Some some are more uh, teacher directed. Some are more. Uh, some use more lectures. Some use, uh, so there's different ways of being a good. But but it's about being uh, present in that lesson uh, and in in the moment of teaching and kind of uh, the the encounter the the kind of dialogue that you have. With the students, that's really can be really impactful. Hmm. I remember when I first started teaching, a piece of advice I thought I was given. I'm not sure whether I was, but it was it was something along the lines of, the, "Above all, you be yourself." And I thought, well, I, on the one hand, I want to be myself, and I don't want to be. <laughs> I want to perform, and uh, I can't I can't be myself. It's got to be a it's got to be a persona. Do do your students ever say, "Well, do you well"? Um, you know how how, how what are, what are the tech, what is what is this good lesson like? You know how should I be in class? I not so much with me because I don't I teach more of the foundations, the theoretical courses or the research course. I don't teach the methods courses so much. Uh, but uh, I what I would say what you said a minute ago was interesting about that you feel like you're performing uh it's true i do i do too and in some sense you're performing when you're standing up every teacher in front of a class is performing there's a performative aspect to teaching uh because you want to kind of uh guard you want to be able to get your students attention you want them to kind of uh, take you seriously. You want them to kind of listen to, you. but but I, I I think that when you're performing as John Gibbs or I'm performing as we're di- we're performing differently. You're performing as John, uh, uh, right? You're you as I say, I say to to kind of here's something that I say to my students that speaks directly to your point, and and. Works perfectly in the UK because it rains a lot there. You may, yes. uh, you may, as a teacher, you may forget your umbrella when you come to teach one day. 
It happens. You forget uh, when it's raining. But you don't forget yourself when you go to teach. You bring that self to the, your class. Every, so when you're, when you're saying... I perform, I, I, I respond, yes, you're performing, but you're performing yourself. You're performing as John Gibbs. You're not performing as Mordecai Gordon. I'm performing as Mordecai Gordon, and I'm not performing as somebody else. So, so, it's, so I, I think you're right. Part of what uh, people, uh, new teachers need to do in the first years of uh, teaching is what I call cultivating their unique teaching persona, which is different from each, for each individual. Cultivating your teaching persona. So, and and uh, by the way, it took me. I'm kind of. Uh, some people are natural, but it took me like two decades to kind of cultivate a good. Uh, t it, it's not. It, it's not necessarily immediate for because um, you know uh, sometimes people give you advice and they say that that doesn't work for you. They say you gotta you gotta be strict with the students and you gotta do this and you gotta don't don't smile. You know they even joke don't smile until Christmas. Don't smile <laughs> those kinds of kind. Uh, so. But you really have to figure out, uh, each teacher has to figure out what works for uh, him or her. Uh, and, and that's what I call uh, cultivating your own teaching persona. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely recognize the truth of what you're saying there in, the, in the, the failed attempt in my early career to be like a teacher I thought had it all. Yeah. <laughs> the teacher whose classes you do go in and they seem to be with a, a concentrating with a tremendous silence and and also enjoying the lessons and the kids say oh he's a wonderful teacher and they think, that's i'll just do what he does right well it, it never really worked of course no. i couldn't do it it was a mysterious something right because uh, you you're different from that person that you thought had it all and you can't just and I and I failed in the same way I tried to be somebody that wasn't me so it takes time to kind of develop and hone that uh, persona mm. yeah. I know one one of the things you've written and again I, have, I haven't read this but I was intrigued by the title so we'll go with that and that is humor laughter and human flourishing uh struck the the the, uh, the 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 beauty of being able to get the students to enjoy the thing as well as as well as uh, as well as you know learn from it appreciate the pass the test whatever but and often that can just be a joke or it can be seeing seeing the the absurdity in things well I used to teach history so seeing the absurdity in history is often a great avenue of uh, of, of of way of teaching so in that in that piece of writing you did humor laughter and human flourishing was that something you would you see as a part of teaching or as part of life generally it's part of life generally it's part of yeah it's uh, it's it's uh part of life but it's also part of teaching uh because um you know uh and I'm not original here I'm not the, um it's uh, one of the most Famous, perhaps the most famous American educators, John Dewey, uh, in his book uh, "Democracy and Education," uh, there's a chapter there on work and play, so that we should, uh, you know, this idea that play is opposite to work is not really true. That, in other words, that bringing it to our context of teaching, learning can be fun. Learning can. Uh, so learning doesn't have to be only this kind of dead serious, stern kind of. There, you can have laughter and humor uh, as long as um, you also you also have the the thing and the serious stuff. Or uh, you know you you use the laughter in a way to to kind of enhance the learning experience. Uh, of of your students, uh, so that's what I'm. Uh, so yeah, and that um, 
that was a phase in my research kind of that I became interested in humor and, and laughter and it actually related to to your context it started when I took uh, years ago I took my daughter who was I think a teenager 14 or something at that time to to London and we uh, went to see like uh, five or seven uh, theater uh, performances in, in five days and most of them were comedies and that kind of reminded me of how much I appreciate that kind of medium of humor so then I came back uh, home to the States and I started doing some research reading up on it and I noticed that because my my uh, expertise is philosophy of education and I noticed that there hadn't been at that time much uh, work done on, uh, this was probably uh, close to 15 years ago, 14. Uh, there hadn't been that much uh, work done on humor and philosophy of education. So I um, started doing my own research and reading what other, and I eventually uh, wrote an article that, uh, called Learning to Laugh at Ourselves and published an article in, in the top uh, educational uh, philosophy journal in, in the US. I think we all recognize the power of laughter in communication and teaching and fixing things in people's memories. I, certainly, I remember teachers who made me laugh at school or were good humored and they stood out in my memory getting students to laugh is certainly getting them getting them on your side and yet laughter in education i doubt it's measured or measurable well it'd be great if it was and that seems like a good place to stop for the teachers talk radio news join us again in a few minutes with my guest professor mordecai gordon Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is considering significant reform of A-levels in England, which, according to the BBC, could see the introduction of what it calls a new British baccalaureate. The PM's plans could include the compulsory study of maths and English up to the age of 18, as reported in the Daily Telegraph. It's not the first time Mr Sunak has considered shake-up, having previously said during an unsuccessful leadership campaign last year that he wanted all young people to study maths to 18. Foreign Office Minister Andrew Mitchell told BBC Radio 4 that he expects Mr Sunak to agree to reform of the education system and said the government will be guided by the best expertise on how we ratchet up standards. Concern about any proposed changes have already been raised by unions and other post-16 professional associations, particularly around the existing issues of recruitment, retention and concerns around workload. A spokesperson for the Sixth Form Colleges Association said the post-16 curriculum was narrow by international standards and this was partly reflective of chronic underinvestment in sixth form education since 2010. The BBC also features an article on the fall in numbers of students being accepted into universities in the UK, the first fall in five years. 
Applications also fell after demand rose during the pandemic. Fewer students got into their first choice of university this year, but more qualified for their second choice or accepted places through clearing. The new data from UCAS shows 270,350 UK 18-year-olds were accepted onto a course this year, down from 275,390 in 2022. UCAS says the figures show a return to normal growth following the surge of demand seen during the pandemic. Data for individual universities is not yet available. Last week on Teachers Talk Radio News, we featured reaction to the latest data published on suspensions and exclusions. In a linked story, Schools Week has published further analysis, this time focusing on data from schools linked to incoming Ofsted Chief Inspector Sir Martin Oliver. The analysis reported in the article suggests the Outwood Grange Academy's Trust Secondaries excluded twice as many pupils as other schools in some of their regions. At a pre-appointment hearing before the Education Committee last month, Sir Martin was challenged by MPs over the Trust's high suspension rates. Sir Martin responded, Our figures for permanent exclusions are lower than most in the areas in which we work. Schools Week says the data for the Trust's 13 secondary schools in Yorkshire and Humber had a 0.31 exclusion rate, the equivalent of three in every 1,000 pupils compared to 0.17 across the region's other secondaries. In the northeast, the Trust's seven secondaries had a rate of 0.64 compared to 0.3 in others. Kim Johnson, the only committee MP to vote against the appointment of Sir Martin, said he should be brought back to answer for his words. Frank Norris, an education advisor for the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, said the original comments could be viewed as misleading. A Trust spokesperson told Schools Week that Sir Martin was comparing exclusion rates between some individual outward schools to some of the other schools in the same local authorities with similar profiles. Spokesperson also added that the schools had been underperforming for years and had now been transformed by the Trust. More details of the Schools Week analysis and full commentary can be found online. In Ireland, the Irish Independent reports on what it calls radical changes in how students are assessed as being on the way in a move to combat the threat of AI platforms such as ChatGPT. Higher education colleges are already being told to abandon certain forms of assessment because they are no longer sufficiently robust to award scores which count towards official grades. These include do-at-home assignments or essays, unsupervised online assessments, and multiple choice quizzes which are conducted online. There will be greater reliance on oral assessments to check understanding and systems to identify if students have cheated by using AI. However, colleges are being told to resist any temptation to switch back to traditional end of semester formal exams. Instead, they should consider short-term re-weighting of assessments whilst they formulate a long-term plan. Finally, this week saw Education Secretary Gillian Keegan comment in the House of Commons that children she had visited in schools affected by poor quality concrete, known as RAC, had been petitioning me to stay in the porter cabin because they preferred it to the actual classroom. Ms Keegan's comments were met with derision by many, saying it showed a chronic lack of understanding of the poor quality facilities schools had been using for many years particularly since the cancellation of the project to rebuild many schools. However, Downing Street defended the comments, saying it reflected a conversation with children and that the department and leaders had worked hard to make sure children had been unaffected by the current challenge. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Welcome to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Mordecai Gordon, author, lecturer, and teacher of education at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut, USA. We're discussing why teachers should not be afraid of uncertainty. Before the break, we were talking about your paper on your article on learning to laugh at ourselves and it seems to me not only is this highly applicable to as a tool for 
teaching and learning that humor is a great is very welcome in any of those environments but also it's something that's quite important about the age we're living in surprisingly there's more serious intensity in which you'd hope that irony and satire would be any a useful antidote to that but it's clear that people like trump for instance or uh, Putin or and the rise of nationalism and entrenched sort of views about things that people obtain in that echo chamber of the internet that there's an increasing humorlessness I would say about about the world we live in uh, to which laughter might be a, an important antidote as well as educational tool yeah you know maybe we take ourselves more seriously today than than in the past yeah and, and there's also i think um uh, at least here in the states but i probably believe it's in other places as well in israel um there's a lot of po polarization now exacerbated by social media uh and and people using uh, their social media uh, platforms to to kind of um, chastise others and and also um, not interacting with people who think different so yeah we're not um, we don't get the benefit of uh, as we should of, of humor uh, because humor, uh, one of the things that humor does is it asks you to in, uh, kind of think outside the box uh, and, and engage with perspectives that could be absurd or, or kind of, um, you know, uh, ironical, cynical, and yeah, so and, forth. And the, uh, who, who'd have thought, I mean, I, if, I, if someone could have said to me before the internet ever appeared, I can remember when the internet you know, I remember teachers first showing me this thing slowly appearing on a screen and we all going, ooh. <laughs> but before the internet, someone described it to me. I would have assumed that the natural consequence of that would be open-mindedness and uh, a, a far greater sense of uncertainty and not polarisation. <laughs> you know, that people wouldn't um, echo chamber back right. their own ideas to themselves and so on. Now, that, that, that comes as a real surprise. And I, and I think a particular challenge to teachers uh, in, in, in this world in which students have so much available information and yet can easily find themselves retreating into areas of certainty. Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge uh, because uh, part of, you know, teachers can only ha do so much and have uh, relatively little um, within their control uh, because education is much broader than schooling and what happens in classrooms and education happens everywhere. Uh, and uh, students maybe um, get a lot of more of their ideas and information from friends, from peer groups, from interacting with social media, you know, social media, as we just mentioned from the home. Uh, so, uh, teachers have a relatively limited amount of, um, but impo yet important, uh, ability to, to influence students, uh, or let's say open-mindedness, open uh, capacity to be more open-minded, uh, because they're only one of, of many influences that that uh, students and people in general are um, being exposed to on, on a daily uh, so uh, we need to recognize that uh, our um, abilities are, are kind of uh, limited in, in a sense uh, although there and there are things that we can do um, but uh, for example, in my last book, I end the book with a, a chapter on education for open-mindedness. And uh, because I'm the, the book itself is an argument, a philosophical argument against canceling and thinking about the, the educational risks and dangers 
of of canceling people, canceling ideas, and and so forth, canceling uh, things that we don't like. But the last book, chapter is uh, about education for open mindedness, and um, my analysis of the research suggests that there is some things that we can do. It is limited, but sometimes things like for let's say high school students or media what's called here in the United media literacy teaching them about you know to to question some of the biases that uh media has exposed and their own biases um, can can have some impact uh about what we been talking about uh, being more open-minded, being uh, willing to listen to different uh, some opinions that contradict your own, etc. Do, do you find that the climate of open-mindedness isn't as great as you might have imagined it would be uh, these days? I mean, not only the uh, I was talking with um, we were mentioning Sharon Fraser Burgess and. Her ideas of how to, how do you deal with difficult things like race in American schools? Well, you think you, you teach it, you know, <laughs> you explore it, you teach it, you discuss it. That what's what's the controversy with dealing with race? But of course, things like um, critical race theory are a hot button, and people are going to find that that's uh, you're challenging the fundamentals of what it is to be American, or something of that kind. Or teaching the British Empire can similarly take you in directions of, like that in this country. Uh, it, it, do you find that it? The, the the mood has made it more difficult to be to 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 teach critical thinking and open mindedness. I don't know if it's more difficult for me per se, but I think it is difficult uh, mm. because, um, in part, because um, it's not just a matter of uh, teaching students facts. Uh, and and I and kind of ideas that they're not aware of. Uh, there's in the United States there's a big uh, resistance now to any kind of diversity training. Critical you mentioned critical race theory, uh, you know, and there's a lot of misinformation that is kind of spread about where what, this where it's happening, and so. That that goes to the polarization that that I mentioned before. So there, um, part of the challenge is that there's half of the United States, or a major part of the political establishment in the United States on the right, is really resistant to any of this, and and uh, kind of hostile. They're resistant even is not even. A, strong enough word that they're openly hostile to this so so that that there's book bannings there's there's uh teachers that have been fired for or suspended for teaching books or or ideas that, that in some states because in the united states it's it's a you know, there's states that are more liberal, as you know, and there's states that are very conservative. So especially in the conservative states, there's been the part of the issue is getting over the, the, the kind of hostility, which is, is very difficult towards these kinds of uh, more progressive ideas, uh, especially when they're not being represented in an accurate Kind of in a, in a fair and, and accurate way, so uh, that's the challenge you know, that we're facing. Yes, really, and and and, and again, a surprise. Who who would have thought? I mean, I can remember from his history. You're studying the sort of Scopes Monkey Trial or something. Oh yes, in the past, people were in American schools. They they found it very difficult to think that would be a, a feature now. That there would be teachers in certain parts of America who would say you can't teach that particular textbook, or that or this idea is uh, steer, steer clear of this idea. That 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 seems to be a trend that is is very surprising. It's surprising and it's not surprising, is there? Because uh, I think his 
if you look at the history of education or the history of, of the United States, uh, there's always been resistance to, to change in the previous century during the civil rights era. There was a lot of resistance and any, uh, and even before that, obviously with slavery and, and the Jim Crow. So any kind of, uh, movement towards more open-mindedness, more diversity is always going to encounter some resistance and hostility. As, as I think it was James Baldwin said something along the lines of power never gives way without a fight. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing him rather than quoting directly, but yeah, so there's always going to be a struggle. Uh, the people that, because the people that uh, feel threatened by change uh, in the United States, um, it's white males in, in power position and, and with conservative values are not going to kind of easily uh, let go of the power that, that they think is theirs. Uh, so, but that's, that's something that is not new. Oh, you know, it's always kind of been this way. And schools are at the forefront of this because change, change changes, you know, schools, I think I might have said in a previous podcast, apologies to listeners to this, but schools are forward looking and backward looking. I mean, they, people expect them to inculcate students with the values that they want students to have. Uh, tolerance or fair play or democracy or something and at the same time be innovative and, ex and exploratory and uh, challenge ideas and in a sense there's a sort of tension between the two and so if you go into school and you say well this is this is we live in a changing time and that's going to be reflected in our in our in the way we teach that's bound to offend someone no i think you're absolutely right john the, there's the tension between the uh, change, the wanting to change, and the on the other hand, the need to kind of preserve certain traditional values and certain ways of doing things and, and kind of helping students learn the ways of we uh, the traditional traditions, the knowledge that comes from the past. So so education is always kind of in some ways trying to negotiate that balance of of backward looking and forward look what you call backward looking forward looking and and so all at the same time it's it's how do we uh kind of negotiate the different pressures within because education is not does not happen in a bubble it's it's situated in a society and a culture and so so culture so right now with the polarized culture that uh, we exist in the United States education is also kind of not separate uh, cannot separate itself from that uh, polarized society that we uh, inhabit. I know that looking at the things you've written, that you have an interest in the writings of Hannah Arendt, the famous philosopher and writer, famous for uh, the banality of evil and so on. But her writing does address this this question in a way: how how you inculcate ideas and values that allow people to embrace the things you want them to, to preserve and at the same time challenge ideas of the past. It's a really difficult problem. So I know that, I wonder if you, you, you take an interest in Hannah Arendt and I wonder if you think she's, her ideas are relevant to this problem. Yeah, I do. And I'm very much influenced by her ideas. Uh, and she, again, uh, says something that pertains to your point about backward looking and forward. She, sa she says in her essay, uh, The Crisis of Education and other places that in education, we need to be conservative for the sake of the new, for the sake of innovation. 
So we need to, in other words, in education, we can't just let go of, of uh, and neglect the past or, or any tradition. We need to kind of, and, and we need to kind of teach students about it, but not for its own sake, but for the sake of that students, uh, for the purpose that students uh, will take the, the, the values from the past and innovate and, and create new, new ideas. So I, I think that's a very powerful uh, statement that tries to kind of bridge the gap between the old and the new in a way that's different from some other thinkers. Because uh, she's not arguing that we, as some traditional thinkers have, have said, that students just need to know the past for its own, but students have to be taught about traditions, the past, uh, ideas, uh, literature, uh, so that they can take these and, and innovate and, and uh, preserving students' uh, ability to be innovators, uh, which is very important. She also says that hope, and I think that's true as well, our hope is always with the new generation, uh, because you and I uh, hate to say it. Uh, we're kind of uh, we're set in our ways more or less, and we we uh, we bring a lot of baggage. Uh, or pe people from our generation. I don't mean that personally. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> absolutely true. But the, what's good about children is that they don't have the kind of baggage that we carry with us. And, and so they're more open to, to kind of new ideas and, and thinking, thinking about uh, like, uh, how do we maintain democracy in, in new ways, given what we have today with social media and, and whatever, uh, all that. But that's a, a topic for probably another podcast. Mm -hmm. Professor Mordecai Gordon, thank you so much for that. I've enjoyed the discussion a lot. I feel I've, I feel I want to go back and read more about Hannah Arendt and uh, and her ideas on education. So th thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, and good luck. Uh, please send me a link once it goes, uh, so I can. Uh, although I hate to hear my, my own voice usually, but <laughs> as a lot of people probably do, but. Uh, but I've really enjoyed it and uh, it's been fun. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And that brings to an end another episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor Mordecai Gordon of Quinnipiac University in Connecticut, USA. Professor Gordon writes and teaches a course on the philosophy of education. And this week we discussed the ideas of Hannah Arendt, the necessity for students to be taught critical thinking, particularly in the context of a world of increasing certainty and fervency. And overall, possibly we should all evaluate our views and wonder whether we're a little too certain a lot of the time. Uncertainty and doubt and not knowing is as important as knowing uncertainty. And that may be one of the greatest gifts we can give students, the ability to think critically, analytically, and with a high degree of uncertainty. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and you can hear it again as a podcast or find it on Spotify, Teachers Talk Radio, and many other platforms. If you wish to know more about the works and writings of Professor Mordecai Gordon, you can find an extensive list of his books, papers, and pamphlets online. Thank you.
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.